0: Hey there, everyone. So do you ever get tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Do you ever get the urge to want to cut through the world of everyday surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths? Well, then maybe, just maybe, the wisdom of podcast is for you. Because in this podcast, we explore great works of philosophy and literature and art. And try to pull out of them what's most invigorating and interesting and inspiring. Whether they come from the works of Plato or Dostoevsky or Picasso, here we explore ideas that move mountains and rock the soul. So come join us, won't you? Come worship at the altar of ideas and come celebrate the dancing of thought. And um don't be afraid of the leaping sparks as you can be certain of one thing they will kindle the light inside of you welcome to the wisdom of
1: As a, as a sort of ode to, you know, to one of your, dare I say, heroes, Albert Camus, and his focus on the absurd, we're once again back with the most absurdly numbered countdown. Not a top 10, top 5, top 3, even a top 8, or how about just a plain old 1, a top 1. That would make more sense. It really is, I mean, I think there's a strong argument that can be made that our number is the absolute strangest, but here we go. For the month of June, it's it's June, I think, yeah? June 2022, the top two philosophical quotes that have nothing to do with this month or this year. Man, way to sell our product here. Nothing
0: has nothing to do with anything and for no reason. And so please stick around and listen. Well, okay, let me at least introduce our two quotes today. So the first one comes from the Greek philosopher Protagoras, who was a contemporary of Plato, and he even debated him. And what he said is this Man is the measure of all things. And the second quote comes from everyone's favorite, Karl Marx, who said, Religion is the opium of the masses.
1: All right. Here we go. We've been dropping little chestnuts uh, here and there for the, the future of The Wisdom Of. Maybe thinking about tilting away from podcasting and moving straight towards creating a multi-acre amusement park. Wisdom Of World. Like, wow. Get it? W-O-W. I'll be honest. Construction is really slowed. Because, you know, living in this proto-fascist Canada, apparently you need permits to build these kind of things. But I can announce a few little things. First, we'll have carnival games. We're going to have a guy dressed up as Protagoras. I saw two statues of him. One had a nose, one didn't. But I think we'll go with the nose one. It's really hard to find a a noseless carnival barker with knowledge of the pre-Socratics these days. But our bearded, sheet-wearing, ancient Greek style, not KKK style, you know, like the toga, our Protagoras will man the man is the measure, so measure the man booth, where you can wager against the accuracy of our would-be Protagoras' ability to guess your height and your weight within 2.5% all for a chance to win one of our collection of pre-Socratic plushies. Yes, we will have Zeno, we will have Democritus, and every kid's favourite, Heraclitus. Pre-Socratic plushies? Nice.
0: That should uh, pull them right in. I can't imagine how it wouldn't. Okay, so your carnival man Protagoras, he said that man is the measure of all things. So what does he mean by this? Well, let me just say right off the bat that no one knows for sure, and there are many ways to interpret it. And by the way, only a few fragments of Protagoras' work has survived, so this even makes it more difficult. But so, that said, I do want to try to give one interpretation. And uh, I'm not pretending that this would be a widely accepted one, by the way. But uh, hey, when has that concern ever stopped us before, right? Okay, But before I look at what Protagoras might mean, let me first give some some background context, because I think it's probably important. Okay, so I would say that Protagoras' thought was largely influenced by, or a reaction to, the scientific theories of his time, especially the pre-Socratic Democrituses. Okay, well, what did Democritus say? Well, essentially, Democritus thought that there was an objective world, but one that laid beneath our appearances of it, and it's one, he said, that consisted of nothing but atoms and the void. That's what ultimate reality was for him, atoms and space. Now, you can imagine that this completely turned upside down the the tangible reality of people's sensible experiences, right? That's to say, it was in flat contradiction to the ordinary lives of people and the evidence of their senses. I mean, we don't see atoms, right? We see horses and trees and so on. But that didn't matter to Democritus. For him, it was just true that we're entirely distanced from reality, especially phenomenologically, that is, in how it appears to us and actually a number of fragments remaining from democritus stress this this um this cognitive gulf let's say that separates us from reality for example he says a man must learn on this principle that he is far removed from the truth here's another yet it will be clear that to know how each thing is in reality is a puzzle and uh one more we know nothing truly for the truth lies hidden in the depth. Anyway, I guess the point here is that Democritus's scientific pursuit claimed to undermine people's common-sense view of the world and attempted to replace it with a, a true account of the underlying reality, namely, atoms. And the important larger point here is, of course, this— it's that Democritus assumes that how things really are is how they are objectively, independently of how they appear to any perceiver or thinker. And similarly, that what is true is what is true objectively, apart from how it may appear to anyone. And of course he thinks that we can access this objective reality through our intellect. Oh, and um, I should say too that Plato another very important contemporary of Protagoras, also believed in an objective reality and really distrusted each individual's subjective convictions and affections. And uh, maybe I'll say more about Plato in a bit, because he's also crucial in this debate. Okay, now all this said, let's get to Protagoras, because like I said, I I think he's reacting to all of this. So, to make this short... I think that for Protagoras, he would say that there's an unavoidable subjective and interpretive element to human existence. So, when he says that man is the measure of all things, what he might mean is that all human thinking or human knowledge is going to be unavoidably subjective. That's to say, the idea is that nothing, absolutely nothing, can be understood by us until it has been interpreted by us until it has been processed and filtered through our minds, through our thinking, and our values, and so on. In other words, when we judge something to be good or bad, or ugly or beautiful, or whatever, we judge it this way for us, from the point of view of human beings, and not from some other being's point of view. Now, This is important because what it means is that we can't conceive of or understand things like a god might, or even an alien species might. The only tools that we have to understand things are going to be our own personal human ones. But this means that we just can't escape our our own limitations, that any judgment that we make is always and invariably going to be restricted by our own local interests and point of view. In other words, we're conditioned by our humanity. There's just no way that we can ever see or understand things in a perfect or um, unconditioned way. So, there's an inherent subjectivity, and so a limitation to all human knowledge. Actually, you know, it's interesting. In his Republic, Plato says something very revealing he says that nothing imperfect is the measure of anything. And um, now that I think about it, in his last book, The Laws, he says the following, also significant. He says, In our eyes, God will be the measure of all things in the highest degree, a degree much higher than is any man they talk of. Now, this all sounds familiar, Right. And you can guess who he's referring to. Yeah, it's Protagoras and the statement that I just talked about. So, Plato disagrees with Protagoras. It's not man, but God that's the measure of all things. Now, what does Plato mean by this? Well, ultimately, what he means is something like there's a truth above the messy and shifting preferences and opinions of human beings. And that man is imperfect and so just can't be a reliable measure of anything. So, it's God that we must turn to, not human beings. Okay, now, how might Protagoras reply to this? Well, he might say, Hey, wait a minute, Plato. Like every other thing, we must also interpret God from our own standpoint, from the standpoint of human beings. I mean... If we have a conception of God, then it's only through our measure of Him. In other words, we still remain the measurer, forever and always with all things, including God. There's no getting away from ourselves. But here's the thing. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's no God, or no um, objective order. But only that if there is, It's always going to be obscured or deformed by our limitations. It's just impossible for us to find out the exact truth of the matter about the existence of God. We must remain agnostic. So, that's what Protagoras might be saying. And, um, if he is, I think it's an outlook that expresses an interesting element of humility. And, um, that's an important recognition because actually protagoras's statement is often associated with the opposite sort of thing namely with a kind of um arrogant anthropocentrism you know the idea that man the human being is the center of all things the ultimate authority and the determiner of all values but while there is that in there in a certain way actually I think Protagoras might also be saying something a little more humble. Again, he might be saying that everything that we measure is going to be colored by the brevity of our life and by our limitations as human beings. A fact which seems to render disingenuous or even hubristic any claim to ultimate truth or objectivity. A warning, perhaps, to thinkers... Like Plato and Democritus.
1: I was going to talk about Marx, not related to a proposed roller coaster that we had in mind, but his notion of historical materialism. I was going to bloviate against it, but then I had a thought. Maybe I should read about it first instead of just proffering a very modern, very convinced, knee jerk reaction. In reading about it, I came across a quote from Marx's partner Engels, a quote that'll never make the top two, but he said, this, uh, historical materialism, has given our adversaries a welcome opportunity for misunderstandings, of which Paul Barth is a striking example. I read that and I stopped and I said, oh my God, I'm Paul Blarth. Barth? Paul Barth? Barth? I don't want to be Paul Barth. But then I actually looked up Paul Barth and he was smart, accomplished. I could only aspire to be that guy, the guy that Engels thought was a dope. Now, that's a roller coaster. Seriously, I got you. That's going to be the ride. It'll be on Wisdom of World and you'll have an actual roller coaster, but you're listening to headphones and the headphones will take you on a psychotic journey where you're doubting everything about yourself. Look forward to that in 2024. Wow, another classic.
0: Actually, you know, I wouldn't mind that roller coaster ride that you're talking about. But then again, who am I kidding? I'm on it every day. And sorry, did you just say bloviate? Okay, right. So in 1843, Marx wrote, religion is the opium of the masses. So what did he mean by this? Well, for Marx, the rise of religion is connected with the the general feeling of helplessness. And he thinks that this has always been the case. So he thought that way back in the early stages of um, human development, religion arose due to our feeling of helplessness in the struggle with the forces of nature. And um, something similar holds in later class societies too. That's to say, in class societies, the root of religion is due to the helplessness of the working class, suffering under oppression in their uneven fight against their exploiters. The idea is that why religion attracts the workers and the masses is that it provides them with the the metaphysical belief that, despite their struggles, there will be a better life after death and rewards in heaven for their sufferings in this life. And actually the the exploiting classes knew this, and that's why they had a strong interest in making sure to to foster religion. Because by pushing religion, they could in a way blunt the class consciousness of the workers, keeping them servile and amenable and preventing them from revolting against their oppression. Maybe another way of saying all this is that Marx thinks that religion is intended to create illusory fantasies for the working class and the poor. In other words, their economic realities prevent the poor from finding real happiness in this life, but but that's okay because religion promises them that they'll find it in the next life. Now, Marx does admit that religion in this case does provide solace or, or consolation for those in distress. That's why it's like opium, which provides relief for those who are injured or hurting. But um here's the problem. The problem is that opium fails to provide a permanent solution to injury. It only makes you forget your suffering for a little while. It just it just dulls the pain temporarily. In other words, it doesn't address the underlying causes or etiology of the illness. Well, similarly, Marx thinks religion doesn't fix the underlying causes of people's pain and suffering. Instead, what it does is it helps them forget why they're suffering, and it causes them to look forward to an imaginary future where all the pain is allegedly going to stop, instead of working to change circumstances now. Even worse, this so-called drug of religion is being administered by the oppressors who are accountable for all the pain and suffering in the first place. Okay, well, you know, Marx wasn't the only, you know, major historical thinker to examine the roots of religion. Sigmund Freud did too. And it's interesting because while Marx took religion to be rooted in this larger social reality that I was talking about, Freud claimed that religion was rooted at the individual psychological level. For him... Religion basically stems from a childhood desire to want a father figure, an omnipotent protector. Actually, if you're interested in what Freud had to say here, we actually did a whole episode on him a while back, so uh, check it out. Anyway, for Freud, like it was for Marx, religion was also an illusion. An illusion that he hoped would be dispelled when we learn to cast off our neurosis, outgrow our dependence, and begin to grow up. Anyway, I, I wonder what our particular opium is in the 21st century, since uh, religion might not have the purchase it once had, right? Well, the real opiate crisis aside, which is a legitimate nightmare, what about? Technology. I mean, doesn't technology often cause us to seek distraction instead of confronting the messiness of life? Doesn't it often numb our senses rather than allow us to face our existential vulnerabilities? And doesn't it often undermine practices that are necessary for real political action, action that brings genuine transformation, rather than the illusion of it. Listening to
1: The Wisdom of Podcast.
0: If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode, Kierkegaard.